This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is the Portland Police Bureau. This has been declared a riot. All persons must immediately leave the area by traveling to the At around 10.30 p.m. on May 29, 2020, a crowd of more than a 1,000 people gathered in North Portland's Peninsula Park and marched downtown to the Justice Center, headquarters of the Portland Police Bureau. The direct inspirations for the march were the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Many in attendance also had a strong desire to express solidarity with protesters in Minneapolis. That's what brought Chris Wise, a volunteer protest medic, out into the streets that first night. Initially, I came out because as an African-American, you know, it was the, that straw that broke the camel's back on just like one death too many. We are murdered by police and other law enforcement agencies at a rate of three to one when compared to the average white American. And those numbers get a little funky because, you know, Obviously, more white people die a year than black people in police-related shootings. But there are also, you know, six times as many white people uh, than black people. Tristan, another black Portlander, didn't go out that night. But he watched everything that happened on the live streams. Honestly, like, my my first um, impression was that it probably wasn't going to be much. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, I didn't expect it to blow up the way it did. I kind of felt like, cause I've, I've seen it happen in the past where, you know, there's, there'll be some kind of like, uh, something happening like nationwide or another city and Portland will kind of like, you know, show up in solidarity for it and it might become something, but usually it's kind of like a one-off. So that's kind of what I was expecting. And so I was pretty surprised to see like how quickly it grew. And then also, how like how the police were responding like in like a very tear gas kind of way. Mariah is a photojournalist and a lifestyle photographer. She was out at Peninsula Park for the very start of the march. 
was the beginning to, you know, <laughs> something that not, not a lot of us knew we were going to get into, you know, but, um, gosh, I remember being at Peninsula Park and it was really great to see everyone there. And like, it just reminds me of some, uh, I hate that it's like a routine thing for us because it's, you know, why we're still fighting and why we've been fighting so strong. But, you know, when someone gets killed by, you know, via police brutality, everyone meets up, you know, maybe we protest for a few days and like, you know, quote unquote, we go back to like normal life. But, you know, we already haven't been in normal life since it's been a pandemic this whole freaking year. But it was really beautiful to see all the people and all the signs and the speeches. The sidewalks bordering Peninsula Park were filled with different slogans and exhortations written in chalk. One of the most striking statements was, make the moment count. As it turned out, the city of Portland took that to heart. The crowd at Peninsula Park marched nearly five miles to downtown Portland. There they merged with a crowd that had gathered around the Justice Center. The moment both groups met was powerful. You could taste the energy in the air. Portland's 2020 Black Lives Matter protests had actually started several days earlier, before that mass gathering on the 29th. A handful of activists of color had begun occupying the steps of the Justice Center immediately after George Floyd's murder. One of them was Tracy Molina, an indigenous Portlander better known as Koska. Well, I remember it wasn't not long after the George Floyd story broke, a lot of us wanted to do something here, but... I think most of the regular organizers kept saying, wait, you know, let's wait, let's wait for this, let's wait for that. And then finally, um, then Danielle James, I think she's a a pretty prominent black activist in this community and stood up against Patriot Prayer and Proud Boys and other white supremacists for years, Um, was kind of the the spark for that. You know, she said, like, we shouldn't wait in the night. Supporter, I said, I don't think we should wait either. I think we should do something now. And so we ended up on the 27th at 10:30, all meeting at ICE and starting the protest there. And then we moved um, sometime after midnight. We moved over to the Justice Center and slept on the steps there and planned to to occupy it as long as we could. And so we stayed there. And then. There was only maybe like four of us that slept on the steps. And then the next day, like at ICE, we had about 30 to 40 people. And then the next day after we stayed on those steps, I would say there was about 40 or 50 people that showed up in the afternoon and they did a direct action where we blocked off the streets in in front of the um, steps of the Justice Center. And I think they did it also did a die-in. And that night there was also uh, impromptu direct action where some people... Some young women sat on uh, sat in the doorway of the justice center, and they brought riot police out for that. And there was at the time there was only about twenty of us, and only like six people participating in the sit-in. But they still brought riot police out, and they were violently removed. That made the news because one of the women, one of the women that was hit with a baton, she was actually pregnant, a black woman, and. The only reason why I know that for sure is because after she was in the ambulance, she came, I don't know if she went to the hospital, but after she was in the ambulance, she returned paperwork from the ambulance, proving that she was pregnant and was, you know, showing the, some of the police officers that were still standing around. But yeah, that's how the first few days went. And then um, then the, we, we all um, were going to have a rally at 
um, Peninsula Park, and then I agreed to do part of the opening. And when I was there, I, more and more people kept coming, and I was surprised that there were so many. I don't know, maybe a thousand people there. I don't know. There was a lot. There was a lot of people there. I was surprised, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. The now merged crowd, which numbered at least a couple of thousand people, marched back to the Justice Center. For a few minutes, they stood outside, chanting George Floyd's name. The police were nowhere to be seen. While most of the crowd stood out in the street, a hundred or so people gathered in front of the windows of the Justice Center. They started spray-painting slogans on the glass. A few people peed on the doorway. Someone lit a small fire out in front. And then, quite suddenly, one person broke a window. The first broken window set off a frenzy, and soon people were using their feet, rocks, and any tools they could find to shatter every exposed piece of glass on the building. With the window shattered, protesters ran into the Justice Center, ransacking police offices and setting small fires. The Portland police arrived a little bit later and began showering the crowd with tear gas and flashbang grenades. Though no one knew it at the time, events had just been set into motion that would lead to more than a hundred consecutive nights of protests and tear gas. The Portland Uprising had begun. We crooked. We should probably start by talking a bit about the definition of a riot. Legally, anything the cops declare a riot is a riot. May 29th is generally referred to as Riot Night because, after the crowd was dispersed from the Justice Center, hundreds of people ran through the streets of Portland's luxury shopping district, smashing up high-end chain stores while the police chased after them. It certainly felt like a riot, but a number of the folks that we interviewed actually disagreed. Alan Kessler, a Portland-based lawyer, pushed back on that description. I guess I disagree that even the first night was a real riot. I mean, there were... Some shops got uh, burgled. There were there were some things stolen. Um, there was a fire in the in the okay. IJC. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that that. I don't I don't know the intent there, right? Like lo- looking at the fire, looking at the piddly fires I've seen. I don't know if anybody means to burn the buildings down or to. I, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it didn't seem like it. It doesn't seem it. If I were going to burn down a building, I would use a hell of a lot more accelerant yeah. uh, than it seems like people are using. Um, I don't know. Uh, I was struck by even on even on that night. I was struck by. Uh, excuse me. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Tend to clip that. Use a whole lot more accelerant out of context. <laughs> Yeah, please don't. <laughs> Alan Kessler says. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trusting you all. Yeah. The freedom's in your hands. No, um, no, we're, we're piping this straight to Andy. <laughs> so, um, no, even that night I was struck by Commissioner Fritz, uh, who I have absolutely no love for, uh, who seemed just horrified that, that Gucci got robbed. <laughs> And uh, and didn't seem able to to put that in any kind of context. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I didn't, I didn't see that as a riot. I didn't think that people uh, 
wanted to just break shit. I think even then it was, it was still, it's political. It was, it was a protest and it, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend that people break stuff or steal stuff or set stuff on fire, but I understood the upset and I, yeah, I, I just didn't see it in those terms. Um, and it didn't seem like, I don't remember that anybody died. I'm sure somebody was hurt, uh, but I don't remember that it was particularly severe that evening. Like, I don't, I don't remember that as a, no, as a violent night. I remember it as a night of property damage. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. And I wasn't making a legal distinct. That was more of a moral argument. Sure. Like I think people put a moral import behind riot and it, I don't think it was that. I don't think it was, I don't think it was a breakdown in civilization. I think it was a, uh, extremely heartfelt, uh, frustration, uh, with a system that wasn't, uh, meeting people's needs. Max Smith, a Portland-based activist and live streamer, called it a riot light. I called it like a riot light that night, I think. I was like, that seems like a little, kind of a riot light. They broke a couple windows, you know, they they sacked the Apple store, of course, you know, some opportunist is going to, you know, take that opportunity if something's, if things are getting broken, someone's going to rob the Apple store. It's, it's, it's dumb because you're going to get caught, but go ahead and rob the Apple store. But, um, you know, that's kind of what I thought of it. Like some stuff's going to get broken. That's what happened. And I actually thought the police, you know, I thought that, and actually thought there was going to be some change, which we saw a couple of things. Like they started talking about, you know, uh, canceling the, the uh, DVRT and the cops in schools and things like that. And uh, and since then, it's, it's it's been fairly tame and we haven't seen a whole lot of progress. So, you know, I felt like it worked a little bit. The point Mac made is one that a lot of activists would agree with. Property damage, they argue, is not nearly in the same moral realm as injuring or killing human beings. Mac himself was not out on the 29th, but he was most directly inspired to start protesting because of something else that happened that day, hundreds of miles south of Portland, in San Jose, California. There was a guy named Derek Sanderlin in San Jose, and he was protesting for, you know, he was protesting against the murder of George Floyd. In, in solidarity with Minneapolis. And I remember waking up and getting on my phone and kind of just uh, flicking th- through th- uh, things and seeing that this man had been shot in the testicles with a rubber bullet and it like required like emergency surgery. And like, he's probably never going to have kids. And I'm looking at this dude and he's like 27 years old. He's like a black dude. He's got dreads. He wears glasses. He's got a, a scrappy ass beard like mine, <laughs> you know, and I'm looking at this guy like, man, that could have been me. And then I keep reading and he was like, he was like a teacher. He taught the police about like not t- targeting people or whatever, or like, you know, de-escalation tactics or whatever. And I'm like, you're telling me they shot a dude that, that trains them. Like, this has got to be one of the craziest things I've ever heard in my life. And he could have died from this, you know? And that just made me so mad. And I was like, it's, even if it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't me, it could have been me if I would have been out there. And so I was just like, that's insane. Like, this should not be a thing at all. This should, ne- this just, this, this can't be real. Many protesters, and some journalists, will argue that most of the riots Portland saw this summer were not cases of protesters rioting, but were instead cop riots. 
After all, if people breaking windows and looting an Apple store is a riot, then police driving into crowds, throwing grenades at random, and tear-gassing hundreds of innocent motorists probably counts as a riot, too. Right? This is the Portland Police Bureau. This has been declared a riot. We crooked. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney Collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. May 29th was not the first night of Portland's BLM protests, but it was the night that set the tone for the next hundred-plus nights. There was tear gas, flashbangs, armored cops fighting demonstrators who were armed with, in the beginning, cardboard signs and water bottles. Now, we're going to cover a lot of ground in this series, and it's probably best to kick this off by giving everyone an overview of what exactly happened in Portland from late May to the end of September, because the mainstream media only really showed a portion of this story. Late on the night of the 29th, the people of Portland learned that their mayor, Ted Wheeler, had actually been out of town visiting his mother. His first response to what had happened was a tweet that started with the word ENOUGH in all caps and ended with a promise that he was COMING BACK NOW. NOW was also in all caps. 
City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty, who was acting president in the mayor's absence, declared a state of emergency and enacted a curfew from 8 p.m. until 6 a.m. At this point, Portland was in the same boat as many other American cities, including New York and Los Angeles. In Portland, the curfew was not enough to clamp down on unrest. Quite the opposite, in fact. Local activists like DSA member Olivia Cotby-Smith were inspired. I just thought that it was it was not like anything I'd ever seen before. I'd never seen that level of um, destruction happen at a protest before. It was exciting. I was like, we're going to start. This is huge. This is going to take off all across the country. It's happening in Portland. It's happening in Minneapolis. Like, this is the start of a revolution. Um, you know, and even knowing that that might not be true, that that's the feeling that I had that night. Several thousand people gathered again on the 30th, and on the 31st, nearly 10,000 Portlanders marched to the Justice Center. We actually sort of organized the protest behind the scenes um, and got like 10,000 people across the bridge, which was awesome. Um, and yeah, it was just, it felt like the, the sky was the limit at that point, like I can't believe there are 10,000 people showing up every single night. Like, this has never happened before. Uh, We have to turn this into something. Both times, police eventually dispersed the crowd with indiscriminate tear gas use and liberal clubbing with truncheons. Thousands of protesters were gassed, but so were hundreds of motorists who happened to be out on city streets, and dozens of houseless individuals who were gassed in their tents for no apparent reason. The curfew was rescinded in early June. It clearly hadn't helped. Next, the city began to build what would become a massive fence around the Justice Center. The protest movement started to splinter between a large group of demonstrators who engaged in daily marches that avoided police contact and a smaller group who repeatedly confronted police at the fence. At first, Portland police would gas and grenade any group of people that drew close to the fence, along with any motorists who happened to be driving nearby. Protesters started calling it the sacred fence because law enforcement seemed to value it more than the physical well-being of Portlanders. The first fence war between protesters and police lasted most of June. There were occasional protests at other police buildings, like the PPA, headquarters of the Portland Police Union, and the North Precinct. Smaller groups of activists also engaged in what was briefly a nationwide practice of pulling down statues of famous white supremacists. On June 18th, a small number of mostly teenage Portlanders toppled a statue of George Washington. This prompted President Trump to create an executive order to protect statues, monuments, and federal property. He sent dozens of federal agents to Portland to enforce this new order. The first time the feds made a large appearance was on July 4th. That night was a turning point for a number of reasons. After weeks of declining numbers, more than a 1,000 Portlanders showed up outside the Justice Center to shoot commercial-grade fireworks at its windows. They fired a few at the adjacent federal courthouse as well. The police LRAD, a car-mounted loudspeaker, started warning everyone not to shoot the courthouse. So, of course, the entire crowd swarmed around the building and continued shooting it with fireworks. Suddenly, wooden hatches opened up on the front of the fortress-like building, and the federal agents inside began tossing out tear gas grenades and shooting impact munitions into the crowd. For a few minutes, the scene resembled a cross between an acid trip and a medieval siege, with protesters bombarding the courthouse with fireworks while the feds inside pumped out gas and riot munitions. This is the- oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. 
Friday night, everybody. Eventually, the fight spilled out into the street, and for several hours, Portland police and Department of Homeland Security agents engaged in a running battle with hundreds of protesters. Fireworks provided the activists with their first weapon that could disrupt a police riot line, while law enforcement responded by escalating physical violence even further. I was walking up from the JC up towards the park blocks, and there was a person who was essentially having an asthma attack and a cloud of tear gas. And they had one buddy with them, and it was just such an impossible project for that one buddy to sort of haul them out of tear gas while they're having an asthma attack and like a panic attack and really having a rough time. Everything got more serious after the 4th. Federal agents started responding to protests downtown more often than the Portland Police Bureau. A week later, federal agents almost killed a protester named Donovan LaBella by shooting him in the forehead with a less lethal round. Slowly, the mainstream media began to realize that something strange and terrifying was happening in Portland. The national interest was finally peaked a few days later, when camo-clad feds in a rental van started kidnapping people off the streets. In early July, the 4th accepted, most nightly protests only numbered a few dozen to a hundred or so protesters. But national media and the specter of federal snatch vans panicked Portland's liberal majority. By mid-late July, thousands upon thousands of protesters were showing up in the street every night. The time between July 18th to the 30th, dubbed the Fed War, is the stuff most Americans saw from Portland in the news. Moms and dads, veterans, doctors, chefs and students gathering in front of the federal courthouse, chanting demands, banging on doors, setting fires, ripping off plywood covering the windows, and repeatedly tearing down that massive fence. Whenever the federal agents came out, a shield wall of protesters would form, deflecting metal tear gas canisters and flashbangs up into the air. People armed with leaf blowers directed gas back at the feds. In response, the feds started using experimental new weapons, including a pesticide sprayer jerry-rigged to spew poison gas. Seeing the police attack people, especially the feds, when the feds came, when they came and started attacking people like, like in the smoke after I got like a gas mask and started going into the smoke, you know, and seeing what was yeah. going on in there, I was pretty, I was pretty uh, disturbed by seeing the way that they were like beating people <laughs> under the uh, under the cover of tear gas that was um that was a surprise for me i'd heard people saying oh, i got my ass kicked in there but i didn't know it was going down like that as july came and went so did the visible federal presence downtown most of the more liberal types packed it up calling the protests a success but while the days of walls of camouflaged feds had temporarily ended, despite reports of their withdrawal, federal presence in Portland lingered on for weeks. Dedicated activists were not fooled by the faux withdrawal. They knew the work was far from over. Throughout August, protesters gathered in front of police precincts, city buildings, and Portland's ICE facility. Sometimes they engaged in property damage, but more often they just stood in the street, yelling at the cops until they were inevitably charged by riot lines. It was in August that Portland first saw right-wing counter-protests, generally framed as Back the Blue or MAGA gatherings. Sometimes these escalated into street brawls between Proud Boys and left-wing activists. On several occasions, Proud Boys and other right-wing vigilantes threw homemade explosives and shot paintball guns into crowds. Live rounds were even fired into the air and into crowds. The escalation continued until a Trump caravan of vehicles waving flags drove through Portland in late August. Several Trump supporters fired paintball guns and mace into the crowds as they drove by. The whole awful day ended with a member of the right-wing street gang, Patriot Prayer, being shot and killed by a white BLM activist after charging him with a can of mace. 
Throughout all this, Portland's BLM marches occurred every single night, right up until late September, when a series of devastating wildfires overwhelmed Oregon and blanketed the city of Portland in a thick haze of poison. The nightly marches were halted, and the various mutual aid organizations that had started up to service the protests turned their efforts to meeting the needs of evacuees. Meanwhile, right-wing activists blamed the fires on Antifa and spent several days setting up illegal armed checkpoints and threatening people with rifles. When the rains came and the air cleared, the protests started up again. They were no longer nightly affairs, but they've remained regular occurrences ever since. And all of this begs the question, why Portland? All 50 U.S. states hosted Black Lives Matter protests during the summer of 2020. Many cities saw mass demonstrations. And while 93% of BLM protests were considered peaceful, numerous cities saw rioting, exchanges of gunfire, and even had buildings burnt down. But no city in the United States had as many continuous nights of protest as Portland. No city saw thousands of its citizens lay a weeks-long siege of a federal courthouse. No city experienced a thousand-person street fight between right- and left-wing demonstrators. Perhaps most importantly, no city earned the ire of President Donald Trump in the same way as Portland. It seems bizarre that this all would happen in Portland, a small city of about 653,000 people. How did it grow to become one of the most active front lines in a national battle for black lives and against white supremacy? It actually makes a lot of sense once you scratch beneath the surface a bit. Here's Tristan again. Oregon was kind of um, founded as like something of like a white utopia, you know, like a place for the, the white man to really like find his destiny, right? And like conquer this, you know, this continent. And I think that's just kind of like, it's just like baked into the culture here where even like, even like the love of the outdoors isn't like, isn't like a love of, um, like keep, like keeping the environment like healthy and like balanced. It's just like a very like commodified, like we deserve this, you know, we deserve to live in this beautiful place and we're the only ones who know how to like take care of it and obviously that's like mellowed out a little bit over the you know decades but i think that's still basically like what what like um it's like the undercurrent you know that's like behind most of what goes on in oregon you can learn a lot of what you need to know about Oregon's history of racism by studying one of the state's founders, Peter Hardman Burnett. As a young man in Tennessee, he murdered a black person with a booby trap as revenge for petty theft. In 1843, he helped organize the first great wagon train of white people that headed to the Oregon Territory. He was elected to the provisional legislature and served as the territory's first Supreme Court justice. In 1844, he worked to pass what became known as Burnett's Lash Law. This stated that all black people were required to leave Oregon under penalty of being whipped in public, not less than 20 or more than 39 stripes. This punishment was to be repeated every six months until they moved. The law did include a grace period, three years for black women and two years for black men. Burnett also pushed to ban Chinese immigration into Oregon. While there are no documented instances of the lash laws being used, it set a clear tone for the state. Burnett's lash law reflected the values of the first white people who moved to Oregon. They were abolitionists in that they hated slavery, 
But they only hated slavery because they were revolted by the thought of living near black people. In 1848, the Oregon territorial government passed a law that banned any, quote, Negro or mulatto from living in Oregon. In 1850, the Oregon Donation Land Act gave whites and half-breed Indians their, quote, 650 acres of land from the government. All other people of color were banned from the land grants. Oregon was finally made a state in February 1859. Under its constitution, quote, No free Negro or mulatto not residing in this state at the time of the adoption of this constitution shall ever come, reside, or be within this state, or hold any real estate, or make any contract, or maintain any suit therein, and the legislative assembly shall provide by penal laws for the removal by public officers of all such free Negroes and mulattoes, and for their effectual exclusion from the state, and for the punishment of persons who shall bring them into the state, or employ or harbor them therein. Oregon remains the only state in the Union that ever banned black people from living there. Now, things have gotten better since 1859, but better is a low bar, and Portland remains the whitest metropolitan area in the United States. 77% of the population is white. Less than 6% is black. Today, Portland owns the distinction as one of the most gentrified cities in the United States. Oregon continues to report some of the worst graduation rates for black students in the nation, and the wealth gap between white and black Oregonians over the last 50 years has widened, not shrunk. I moved to Portland like uh, like five and a half, six years ago, I think. And from where? I definitely, I did, uh, from Northern California. Gotcha. Uh, Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really, I didn't have a idea of what the city was per se. Like I'd never seen a, an episode of Portlandia, for instance. I just kind of moved up here uh, to be closer to family. <clears throat> and, and yeah, when I, when I kind of first got here, it was like, you know, that hang out with a bunch of like hippies, a bunch of like people who love trees and to ride bikes and go hiking. And it's like, oh, they love the environment and they love progressive you know politics and you know and everything's just chill but then like the longer i stayed here the 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 facade started to like fall away and yeah and it's i mean i I, like i've been here for you know almost six years now and i still i don't quite know what to make of it still you know but like recently um like with the passage of or like with the most recent like election you know like so the local measures that passed and went and didn't pass mm-hmm. it's like like Oregon loves to have a black friend like that's <laughs> what they like they like to have somebody they can point to and be like look I'm not racist but they don't they're not interested in actually like challenging the like white supremacist like power structures that actually like benefit them and and if you like if you agitate them on that they just you know that's that's when like the the pacific northwest like passive aggressiveness like kicks in and they just like kind of like try to ignore you but secretly they're totally fucking pissed off that you dare to like insinuate that they're racist um but yeah that's like it's a really complicated thing and i I still quite haven't figured out like what makes white people tick here but It's, you know, it's messy.
Another activist we interviewed, Courtney, is an indigenous Hawaiian person who moved to Oregon when she was 17. She recalls being stunned by how white her school was. I, like, ended up going to Oregon City High School, which was, like, insane. I was the only non-Hispanic person that was at that school. Um, And nobody talked to me for a really long time. And I just was kind of like, it was a culture shock because there were so many white people that I had never seen this many white people in my entire life because everyone in Hawaii is like mixed races. Majority of them are Asian or Polynesian. So um, I definitely was, nobody really talked to me for a while. And I kind of like found my little niche of people to hang out with. Um, But yeah, like just even living in that area, uh, I would get a lot of weird looks. And, um, yeah, just not the most friendly people to, to be around. Um, yeah, that's basically, it's just a culture shock to just see how white Oregon is. Yeah. I just, I didn't expect it at all. I didn't. And I was like, I knew that there were going to be like Hispanic people, but I just didn't realize that, um, I thought maybe I would see more after like black people yeah. and, and especially living in a city, you know, in Port- when you're in, from Hawaii and you're like, Portland is just like a major city in the United States. And then coming here and not really seeing the mix of cultures was just kind of shocking. Tristan described the racism in Portland as unique in a subtle way. It's just, it's very, it's very covert or, you know, it tries to be very covert. Um, and it's very like, like well, part part of what it is is that for a very long time now there've barely been any people of color here at all. Like, you know, it's one of the whitest states in the country. It's the whitest major city in the country, and so like to a certain extent, people are they just don't actually know what like you know like what like a microaggression is or what what that would be. Like, you know, I had to experience. Um, like just like a year, year and a half ago, maybe I was out with this group, um, these like forest defender type people. And every year they go out and post this big camp out and, you know, like go out into the woods and do like surveys and stuff like that and try to collect data they can use to, to fight timber companies and shit. And like someone just dropped the N word, like, just five feet from me, just like in casual conversation. And then I had to like address the camp like at breakfast. And I was like, okay, so just, just don't, don't say that word. Like there's no, like, like, like even if you're just telling a story, like there's no appropriate context for a white person to say that. And, and that's one of the reasons why I don't go to those fucking campouts anymore but like it's like that it's like they just don't they haven't been around black people or people of color in general and they just don't know what to do and of course the racism that pervades portland is present in the portland police bureau despite black people making up again less than six percent of the population portland police use force on black people more often than people of any other race portland police are five to 14 times more likely to shoot impact munitions at and to forcibly restrain black residents 
At one point in the late 60s, black Portlanders accounted for nearly half of PPB's arrests. Portland's black community has been fighting against this kind of racist violence for decades. Here's Max Smith again. For me, the battle with the police began, you know, in the hip hop field. Um, there was an event here in Portland that happened maybe six or seven years ago um, that happened at a venue called The Blue Monk. And it was a pretty big deal. And I was there and I had friends who were performing at the show and the police essentially came under the guise of a, a capacity vi- a violation and brought like a seven cars and 20 something officers and shut the whole street of Belmont a, a, a down. And, and that bar eventually actually ended up a, a closing shortly after that. <laughs> um, and it was a huge deal. They made a huge deal about a small thing and it went like into like national news. And even prior to that, we had been really combating the efforts of the police to kind of shut a, a down or stifle a hip hop events in the city. Every time we wanted to have a hip hop event, it became like, you know, like a world war um, uh, to the point that it ended up actually being a protest about the hip hop uh, community here. And um, so that was a fight that we had as far as hip hop music in clubs, as far as hip hop events, as far as live music. Um, they really just used the city's resources that the police, the fire marshals, and the, the OLCC to really like uh, shut uh, down hip hop and, and, and really any black uh, led events. Lawyer Alan Kessler has done a lot of digging into the early history of the Portland police. His research has revealed a century long history of Portland police involvement with hate groups, most particularly the Ku Klux Klan. I think it was the last Memorial Day. I spent the whole weekend in the Oregonian archives, basically living through World War II. Uh, It wasn't fun. Uh, And it's outrageous. Like the Klan was on, there was a front page column, uh, talk to a Klansman every day for like a week. Uh, And then every other day they had the Klan on the front page anyway. But that, you know, that was like, um, it was, yeah, it was incredible. Um, During the war, Basically, everybody, every adult white dude had a little star badge. Uh, they, the police would basically deputize anybody or people would just go get badges made. So everybody in town had a badge. There were lots of articles in that time frame about um, fake police officer pulls over so-and-so and they sue. In 1923, a Portland Telegram article reported that the Portland Police Bureau was, quote, full to the brink with Klansmen. The police bureau actually deputized 100 Klansmen, handpicked by the local Grand Dragon, and designated them Portland Police Vigilantes. This was before the PPA existed, but the tradition lives on. In 2010, Portland Police Officer Mark Kruger was suspended for erecting a memorial to five deceased Nazi soldiers on city property. The PPA successfully sued for him to be reinstated and given an apology. When he quit in early 2020, he was the highest paid police officer on the force. I asked Mariah, a lifelong Portland resident, what her earliest memory of the police was. Here's what she told me. I would say it was when I was um, a child, honestly. Um, I've had some some family stuff and a family member have to go away to, to prison. So I remember some like vaguely stuff, like remember then as far as like police brutality wise, um, the very first like murder I remember was Kendra James. Um, that would happened like a mile from my house. And I want to say I was like 10 at the time. 
Kendra James was a 21-year-old black mother of two. She was killed under suspicious circumstances during a traffic stop. Her killer, Officer Scott McAllister, fired a single shot when James attempted to drive away from the traffic stop after the motion of the vehicle caused him to fall. A number of the statements he made in court were inconsistent with physical evidence required from the shooting, and we don't really know exactly what happened. Among other things, the police argued in court that Portland police were trained to, quote, shoot as they fall. F the police is how I grew up. Um, my dad is a huge like Tupac fan. So like I would grow up on hearing Tupac lyrics all the time about screw the police and everything. So yeah, no screw. Yeah, no, that's how I like grew up. Yeah. Um, is to like not interact with them. Yeah. I've, I've grown up, you know, how a lot of us, you know, people who are black feel like, you know, when we're being followed, profiled, all that. I mean, I got profiled today in, in a store. Like it's, it still happens. It's been going on since a kid. I don't know if, it, I don't know when it will stop, but you know, still goes on. Officer McAllister was acquitted in federal court. He got to keep his job, but even if he had been fired for the shooting, the firing might not have stuck. Nationwide, 25% of police officers fired for misconduct are reinstated because of union-mandated appeals. Over the years, this has included an officer who challenged a handcuffed man to a fistfight for his freedom, and a cop who sexually assaulted a young woman in his patrol car. In many cities, the number of police reinstated by union appeals is much higher than 25%. 70% of fired San Antonio officers are reinstated because of union appeals. The number is 62% for Philly cops and 50% for Minneapolis cops. This is part of why the people of Minneapolis burnt the third precinct to the ground after George Floyd's murder. They knew from experience that it was extremely likely Derek Chauvin, Floyd's killer, would not just avoid prison, but would soon be back on the street with a badge. In fact, as soon as Derek Chauvin and the other officers responsible for George Floyd's death were fired, police union head Bob Kroll started fighting to have them reinstated. He was concerned that they had been, quote, terminated without due process. Kroll was oddly unconcerned that the same thing was true of Mr. Floyd. The fact that police officers are extremely difficult to fire, even when they commit murder or rape on the job, is a national problem. But it is a national problem that traces back to a single place. Where else? The city of Portland, Oregon. And more specifically, to the Portland Police Association. We crooked. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. 
on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. The Portland Police Association, or PPA, is Portland's police union. And in a way, it's the police union, because the PPA is actually the oldest functioning police union in the United States. Police had attempted to unionize several times before the PPA was established in 1942, but Portland was the first city to get it right, and the PPA has served as a model for the rest of the nation's law enforcement ever since. Every other police union in the United States is based off of the Portland Police Association. And one of the many trends the PPA set was in suing to reinstate fired officers. This story starts on the night of March 12, 1981, when two Portland police officers from the North Precinct dumped four dead possums in the doorway of the Burger Barn, one of Portland's few black-owned businesses. The use of the word possum as a derogatory term for black Americans dates back as far as 1830. The owner of the Burger Barn, George Powell, called the police commissioner to report the incident and claimed that it was only the latest example of police harassment his business had faced. An internal investigation was opened, and the officers responsible, Ward and Galloway, admitted their guilt immediately. Their identity was initially kept hidden thanks to a clause in the PPA contract with the city that protected officers from having their names disclosed during disciplinary proceedings. This is another one of the innovations that the Portland Police Association brought to police departments nationwide, by the way. The possum incident happened at an awkward time for the Portland police. Several officers had just been fired and convicted of faking evidence and using illegal drugs on the job. Nearly a hundred criminal cases had to be thrown out because of falsified evidence. Public opinion of the police bureau was low, and when Portlanders started marching and demonstrating to demand that officers Ward and Galloway be fired, the police commissioner was only too happy to oblige them. Enter Stan Peters, the most powerful union president Portland has ever had. Peters took to every local news show in town. He circulated petitions. He even organized a mass protest march made up of Portland police officers and their families. He forced the city government into arbitration, which ended with both officers being rehired and given back pay. There's actually a book about the Portland Police Association, Pickets, Pistols, and Politics. Alan Kessler informed us of its existence. Here's what it says about the court case that resolved the possum incident. Quote, 
The city of Portland versus Ward and Galloway case is still the leading police discipline case in the United States, and in labor law circles is the arbitration decision referred to the most often. Its legal nomenclature is simply City of Portland. And so in the end, it really isn't that odd that the city of Portland wound up as ground zero for a battle against white supremacy and police brutality, and a battle for black lives. It's actually been that for a very, very long time. As much as people have just kind of started to contextualize how Antifa has been fighting against these chuds here for years, you know, it actually isn't just the last couple of years where it's been in the news. This has been going on for decades in Portland. There's always been a level, especially like in Southeast Portland, there's always been like, even like in the 80s, there's been like, you know, these white skinhead groups and the Sharps. It's always kind of been like a race war uh, between the white folks in Portland, especially in the Southeast. Over the course of the summer of 2020, Portland's wounds were exposed to the world. After George Floyd's gruesome murder accelerated long-brewing unrest across the country and even the globe, the Northwest's liberal bastion was forced to reckon with its own deeply anti-black traditions, while also becoming an unlikely epicenter in a movement for black lives that had taken the world by storm. Thousands took to the streets in a battle that would be fought against a corrupt police force, Trump's federal agents, right-wing vigilantes, and even at times between protesters themselves. Through it all, people banded together to support each other and build the infrastructure that would propel the city to 100-plus days of protests that even the strongest tear gas couldn't end. In the next episode, we will delve into how a disorganized crowd of angry Portlanders turned themselves into a movement that could stand up to the worst violence the Trump administration could throw at it. Uh... Word to grandpops who couldn't fathom the Obamas. I don't hate America, just the man she keeps her promises. Twenty teens looking like the 60s, it's crazy. A nationwide deja vu, what my people supposed to do? Go to schools named after the Klan founder. Word around town is y'all don't see why we frowning. Native American students forced to learn about when opera Sarah. How is that fair, bruh? Some heroes unsung and some monsters get monuments built for them. But ain't be all a little bit a monster, we crooked. Man, your heroes are worthless And man can show try, but only God gives purpose You crooked I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 